What are you going to no, tell me? What? <laughs> Stop. <laughs> no. I studied abroad in Never England. Never been out of New York. <laughs> in where? In England. I studied abroad. Where Where in England? Bath. Bath. Okay, cool. It was very posh. Very um, posh. Uh, yeah, uh, I, no, I've never been to France. I've never been to France. And wow. so my mom and I have talked about, like, me and her and my sister taking a little girl's trip. Mm-hmm. But then I'm like, let's just bring dad. Let's just bring him. I think he wants to go. I think dad wants to go. I think, I think dad's dad ready go. for the trip <laughs> this time. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe he's like, actually, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, let me golf, please. Let me just... Golf. Is he a big golfer? He is a big golfer. Wow. Yeah. Fred. Good old Fred. Hello and welcome to Talking Too Loud with Chris Savage. I'm your host, Chris Savage. I'm joined by Sylvie Lubau. Or is it Lebeau? Uh, new year. <laughs> new year, new, new year, name. New pronunciation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I uh, like it. How are you, Sylvie? How's 2021? 2021. Better than last year. <laughs> we can say that, right? <laughs> Better than last year. Um, what's got you talking too loud in the new year? I, you know, I moved and so you forget when you move, there's many other things you have to do. There's just a lot of things. You got to forward your mail. You got (laughs) to, Oh, that's a big one. You you think about packing. You don't think about unpacking and you don't think about how long you'll let boxes live near you that have things in them that you just have Mm. lost motivation to unpack. (laughs) So I'm very happy because I've finished unpacking my boxes. No more boxes left. Love that for um, my you. My mail seems to be going to the right place. But I did have an experience recently that was a little frustrating. You know, I had to get a new ID and I had to change the registration for my car. So it seems like normal stuff, right? You know, just go, <laughs> go to the DMV, get that stuff yeah. figured out. But I had a problem, which is that I lost my wallet. <laughs> I can't even think of the last time I lost my wallet, but I lost my wallet in my house. <laughs> it's in one of the boxes. I don't know. Maybe it's I clearly threw it in out. one of the boxes. I have. No idea where it is. I waited and waited and waited before like getting new credit cards or anything because I'm barely leaving the house. I was just like, you know, I'm sure it'll turn up. I'm sure it'll turn up. So I had to go to the DMV and I booked this thing to go, right? And (laughs) if you want to get a new license and you don't have your old license, you need a lot more, many more materials. We've got driving records. We've got old W-2s. We've got, (laughs) um, you know, insurance in multiple states. I've got all this stuff. Go inside, wait in a line, get a number, sit in a chair and wait, and just like be quiet, and everyone's got their masks and blah, blah, blah. Then, finally, they call my number. I was uh, 1073, so I was very excited. You know how Lucky it goes. number, as it's I like, say. It's like 1072, and then they go 2065. Then they go 3030, 3031, 3032, and you're just like waiting, yeah. and I'm like, please, I know 1073 is one away. So anyway... I get up there, and the the lovely woman, she starts going through all of my materials, and I don't say a word, because I'm just like, do I have the right things? Like, is this going to work? And she goes, all right, stand over there. We're taking your picture. It's like, oh, okay. So take the picture. All right. And she's like, do you want to do another one? You didn't really smile. I'm like, okay, yeah, let's do another one. Which is also just a delight. I feel like yeah, the, to do the, two, yeah. you never get, you never yes. get a second we chance. Do we do two. And then... <laughs> And then she goes, how are you going to pay? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, you don't have your wallet, bro. Uh, do you take Apple Pay? <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Yeah. She's the like, DMV, that's yeah, She's still like, no, I don't take Apple numbers. Pay. I was like, yeah. I know my credit mm. card number. It's in my phone. Can I tell you my credit card number? Uh-huh, and she's uh-huh. like, no, I have to swipe it. I was like, you can't put it on the keypad right there? <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, no, I have to swipe it. I'm like, okay, um, can, can you pay? And I'll Venmo you? <laughs> <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> I did. Um, and she's like, no, I can't. People ask me that all the time. Like, I can't do that. And so no. then she's like, but I can, you know, I made my appointment five weeks before I could get in there. So it was a long wait time. She's like, well, I can give you this special red card. And if you can go get some way to pay and you can come back within the next hour, you can wait in line again and do this again. And I was oh like, oh my God, 1073, you got to get back in line. Yes. So I'm dejected and embarrassed, mostly because like I yeah. spent so long getting ready for this and I've made the mistake. Like, I could have yeah. gotten a debit card. I could have gotten some. Right. I could have just thought because I you had cash. so many other materials. Yeah, I just yeah. wasn't even. Th- I've got passports. I'm not thinking about this. And I, it turns out in the last month, basically, I can use Apple Pay everywhere. It's been if I've gone to Whole Foods or get you know coffee Listen, to go. It's all the good. DMV is the only one that keeps it real. Yes. out of out of yes. all of them, so, it's my kind of place. Yeah. So she she get, takes this giant red card, and she just writes one word on it. She just writes money. <laughs> <laughs> and then she hands it to me and she's like, you have an hour. <laughs> and then I drove That's back. That's like a scene went, out of yes, a crime yes, movie. It was ridiculous. Money. You got an hour. And I waited and waited and then yeah. it was all fine. And I, my car is now registered here and I have. That's how they do things in Providence. A new license. So I'm very excited now. It all, it all worked out. I am happy that that story had a happy ending. Me too. But I'm, I'll, you know, 1073, I feel like that's just burned in my brain. Yeah. Forever. Yeah. No, new year, new ID, new car registration, new DMV. You know, it's all, it's, it's, it's exciting stuff. <laughs> Super exciting. All right. Well, uh, um, obviously, there was a lot of materials I had to get ready there. I feel like the feedback she gave me was very direct. Um, uh, about getting ready, you know. Okay, you don't have money, you can't pay. I'm like, okay, thank I you. I smell a segue coming. Yes, we got a segue coming. And on today's show, we have someone who is an expert at helping people give better feedback to each other. That's right. We have Kim Scott. She is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Radical Candor, an incredible book about how to create workplaces where there's better, more thoughtful feedback, so that people can grow and evolve. It's something we've used at Wistia for years. We absolutely love Radical Candor. And she also has a brand new book that is coming out very soon. I think March, right, Sylvie? Yeah, March 2021. Wow, March March this well, year. I don't know why I said the year. Because we're <laughs> yeah. so excited that it's a new year. Yes, coming I out am. coming out in March called <laughs> Just Work, Get Shit Done Fast and Fair about building more equitable and just workplaces. It was a great conversation, super fun. So... Let's jump in there and see what Kim has to say. Kim, it's so great to see you. How are you? It is great to see you. I'm doing all right. All things considered. All things considered. (laughs) All things considered. (laughs) Well, as you know, this show is called Talking Too Loud, and it's a show about the things that get us really excited, the things that we're really passionate about big problems that people are solving, big ideas that that people are tackling. And I'm going to wager a guess that you might be excited about something that's coming out very soon that is your new book. And you so, are uh, correct. I'm very tell excited about, about my new book. Yeah. <laughs> so the new, 
The new book is called Just Work, Get Shit Done Fast and Fair, and it's about how to build more equitable organizations, how to sort of distinguish between bias, prejudice, and bullying, and then what happens when power gets laid on top of those three things, and you get discrimination, harassment, and physical violations. And what are the things we can all do to solve these problems? What are the things we can do as leaders? What are the things we can do as upstanders? What are the things we can do when we're the targets of these attitudes and behaviors? And what can we do when we actually exhibit these attitudes and behaviors? What can we do to become part of the solution, not part of the problem? So I'm very excited about that new book. Awesome. Well, look, I want to get into the new book. I also I want to give people context because you know you and I. I was just looking it up. I met you, I think, two and a half, three years ago, at mm-hmm. a at a moment at Wistia's time when we had a problem actually, which was we did not have enough like feedback happening in our culture, and I was trying to figure out like how do I get people telling each other the truth more? Like how do we actually? Yeah. How do, which is really hard when the company is growing. And someone recommended Radical Candor to me, and I read it, and I was like, oh my gosh, like this is a blueprint for how to think about building an organization that can give really honest and good feedback and, and make better decisions. Then we had the whole company read the book, and then I met you, and you were just like, you know, have these answers to questions that f- seem like they're so hard, so hard to answer. But for, for those who don't know Radical Candor, can you tell the audience just a little bit like, I'm, I'm not going to say the cliff notes, but like the high level version of what Radical Candor is um, and how people put it to work? Sure. So Radical Candor on the surface is a pretty simple idea. It means that you care personally about people and at the same time you challenge them directly. So when you care and challenge at the same time, that's Radical Candor. What, you might ask, is so radical about that? It doesn't sound sort of like <laughs> common sense. And, and it is at a certain, uh, to a certain extent common sense. But I think that there's so many there's so many ways to get this wrong and there's so many pressures that are on us like from the time we get our first job we're 18 19 20 years old we are right at that moment in our lives when our egos are maximally fragile and our personas are beginning to solidify and right at that moment someone comes along and they say be professional and i think for an awful lot of us without even realizing it we translate that to mean Leave your emotions, leave your real identity, leave your humanity, leave everything that's best about you at home and show up at work like some kind of robot. And you can't possibly care personally if you're showing up at work like some kind of robot. But unfortunately, love is not all you need. The Beatles got that wrong. You also need this (laughs) challenge directly (laughs) part at the same time. And here, I think the problem begins not when we're 18 years old, but when we're 18 months old, like as soon as we learn to speak, our parents say to us some version of, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And this, this is hard. It's hard to undo training that's been pounded into your head since you were 18 years old and 18 months old. So that's why radical candor is rare enough that it earned the name radical candor instead of common sense or common human decency. Was there somebody who was radically candid in your life that you were like, this is the kind of person that I want to hold up on a pedestal and like show people this is what it's all about? Yeah, probably the first person in my life who was radically candid with me was my grandmother. (laughs) 
So, Granny, yes, my grandmother, my, my my grandmother had had three sisters, and they all said of her, "If you really want to know, as in, do you really want to know whether your butt looks big in those pants? Ask Alice." So, <laughs> Granny would tell you the truth, but she would say it with love. So that was probably the originator of radical candor. But there's there's a story I often tell. Do you want to hear a story? We love stories. Okay. So here is sort of a moment of radical candor from my career. It happened shortly after I joined Google, and I had to give a presentation to the founders and the CEO about how the AdSense business was doing. And I walked into the room, and there in one corner of the room is one of the co-founders wearing toe shoes, standing on an elliptical trainer, stepping away. (laughs) Not what I was (laughs) expecting. And there in the other corner of the room is the CEO who's got his head so deep in his email, it's like his brain has been plugged into the machine. And so probably like you in that situation, I felt a little bit nervous. How in the world was I supposed to get these people's attention? Luckily for me, the AdSense business was on fire. And when I said how many new customers we had added, the CEO almost fell off his chair. And he said, what did you say? This is incredible. Do you need more marketing dollars? Do you need more engineering resources? So I'm feeling like the meeting's going all right. In fact, I now believe that I'm a genius. And I walked out of the room past my boss, and I'm expecting a high five, a pat on the back. And instead, she says to me, why don't you walk back to my office with me? And I thought, oh, wow, I screwed something up, and I'm sure I'm about to hear about it. And she started the conversation by telling me about the things that had gone well in the meeting. But of course, all I wanted to do was hear about what I had done wrong. And eventually, she said to me, you said um a lot in there. Were you aware of it? And with that, I breathed a huge sigh of relief, because if that was all I had done wrong, who really cared? And I kind of made this brush-off gesture with my hand, and I said, yeah, I know, it's a verbal tick. It's no big deal, really. And then she said, I know this great speech coach. I'm sure Google would pay for it. Would you like an introduction? And once again, I made this brush-off gesture with my hand. I said, no, I'm busy. I don't have time for a speech coach. Didn't you hear about all those new customers? And then she stops, she looks right at me, and she said, I can see when you do that thing with your hand that I'm going to have to be a lot more direct with you. When you say, um, every third word, it makes you sound stupid. Now, she's got my full attention. And some people might say it was mean of her to say that I sounded stupid. But in fact, it was the kindest thing she could have done for me at that moment. And by the way, she probably wouldn't have used those words with someone else on her team who was a better listener than I was. But if she hadn't used just those words with me, I never would have gone to see the speech coach and I wouldn't have learned that she was not exaggerating. I literally said um every third word. And this was news for me because I had been giving presentations my whole career. I had raised millions of dollars for two different startups giving presentations. I thought I was pretty good at it. And so this really got me to thinking, what was it about her that made it so seemingly easy for her to give me feedback? And perhaps more interestingly, why had no one else given me feedback? And and as I thought about it, that was sort of when I realized it really boiled down to these two things, care personally and challenge directly. 
I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that she had my back and that she cared about me, not just as an employee, but as a human being. Yeah, it's such a good story because I think like it seems so surprising when you say like, well, she told me you sound like it. You sound stupid. You're like, that sounds yeah. horrible. But what she's, <laughs> she's trying to help you and tell you yeah. like you're, this is the perspective that other people are going to have and it's going to hold you back in your career. And so I'm telling you this so that you yeah, can actually I- advance. Yeah, and she also didn't go straight there. She yeah. started off by saying sort of gently, were you aware of it? Yeah. I could help you. I can, you know, and I kept brushing her off. So it's like, I think one of the things about radical candor that's important is to be conscious if you're the one doing the speaking, that radical candor gets measured not at your mouth, but at the other person's ear. And to use the radical candor framework to sort of, realize whether you need to go further out on the on the challenge directly dimension of radical candor or whether you need to go higher up on the care personally dimension like if i if she had said you said i'm a lot in there and i had burst into tears like it would have been the wrong thing to say when you say i'm every third word it makes you sound stupid (laughs) then she would have had to attend to the care personally part for us, we definitely had a culture pre-radical candor that like tended towards too much ruinous empathy, mm-hmm. where people were really positive and like just focused yeah. on the positive and didn't challenge directly enough. And they'd be like, I'll just go around this person. I'll go do something else. And it was creating this bizarre situation of having people who everyone seemed to love and think they're doing really well, and then they'd suddenly leave. You're like, why are they leaving? And it's like, well, they're not happy. And they're not yeah. growing and they're confused. And, you know, it's funny because it is something that can be learned, I think, which is that actually the most thoughtful thing you can do is to give the person the feedback. And especially if you have that base, I always think about it as like there's something in the book on making your praise very specific. Yeah. Right. So that like people know, not just like, hey, good job, pat on the back, but like really liked what you did in the third part of that presentation. You know, you, you showed you know the customer very clearly. That resonated really well. And I took that away as like, okay, if I'm doing this with everybody, then later, if there is feedback, it's so much easier to give it because like you have that that baseline. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the f- mistakes that people make when they hear radical candor is they think it's all about criticism. And, and specifically, they think it's all about the boss criticizing the employees. And yeah. that's not true. I mean, first and foremost, it's about soliciting criticism. But the next step in the order of operations is praise. The part of radical candor that's about feedback, or as I like to call it in the book, guidance, is more about praise than about criticism. Because if, you're, if your goal in an organization is to paint a picture of what's possible, it turns out that praise is a, a more important tool. It's not just about like making the person feel good or building the relationship. Not that those things are unimportant, they're important, but it's also about actually success. Praise is an important tool for success. One thing I've noticed since the pandemic has begun, and Lisa, most of us are who can work remotely are working remotely, is I've noticed this challenge. I'd, lo- I'd love your, your insight on it, which is that when we'd have an in-person meeting, you know, people were not perfect. Like, um, I just said, um, and like, see, we're not perfect. We make mistakes. <laughs> no, we're not. Yeah, um, <laughs> I did it again. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, we're, I'm going to bad cycle now. I'm going to just story. cycle into this. Yeah. The point I was going to try to make is that in someone would be communicating something in a meeting and it wouldn't be perfectly clear. They would get something wrong. They would say something that was incomplete and then the meeting would end 
And everyone would get up out of the room and we'd start walking to whatever your next thing is, back to your desk, back to your meeting. And if there was confusion, it was so easy for two people. You know, if I'm confused, I go to Sylvia. I'm like, hey, Sylvia, what did you really mean when you said that? And she's like, oh, I meant X, Y, Z. I'm like, oh, that's the opposite of what I thought. Great. And then we'd have a conversation and then go on our merry way. And I was realizing that a lot of feedback was happening very impromptu around communication and decisions like right after meetings. And then in the remote world, you hit the red button and and the Zoom's gone. It's gone. (laughs) It started to create this problem that I'm trying to work on, but is it's different, which is you're going to have feedback for people after a meeting, but instead of the casual walk-by, walk-along, side-by-side thing, you need to follow up with them. And do you follow up with them via Slack? Do you follow up with them via email? Do you book a meeting for them? Or what the worst case that I've seen happen is that people don't follow up because it feels like making too big of a deal. Have you heard other people talk about this? What do you think about when I tell you this? I I was thinking about a situation I had yesterday. Okay. So yes, yes, I think, <laughs> I think about this all the time. And I don't have, a, there's no perfect answer. And in theory, in this new world in which we inhabit on Zoom, you, could, you, you can schedule back to back to back to back. It's a disaster. Don't do it. It's a disaster, it. yeah. That's... Don't, don't use Slack, but do put Slack time in your calendar. <laughs> um, uh, different <laughs> sense of the word Slack. So you need to have time in between meetings and enough time to take a break and get away from the screen and go outside and get a little vitamin D, but also enough time to pick up your phone and call the person or text the person and say, do you have a minute? And, and you can even get, it's, sometimes it's useful now to recreate some of the ritual of the real world. Say, let's get a cup of tea and actually get a cup of tea. Like, take your computer around and let the person watch you making the hot water or whatever, whatever you, you, you're going to do. And just have that two-minute conversation. And it's a little bit harder to do on the phone. But honestly, it was a little hard to grab the person after the meeting because other people were around. And, and often I found, especially if I was, if I was the, the, you know, the most senior person in the room, and I went up to somebody and I said, let's go get a cup of coffee. It was like, cappuccino of doom, you yeah. know. So, <laughs> So, so in some ways, there you know, it's a little easier to send somebody a text and say, "Do you have a couple of minutes for a phone call?" But I think the it's more important now than it ever was to do it right away, because the longer you wait, the more weighty the conversation becomes. Because it's like, oh, she's been holding on to this for two days. Like, wow, it must be a big deal. And so I, I think scheduling a little bit of time in between meetings is important. I, th- I also have found one of the things that is helpful, it was always natural to chit chat before a meeting as you're waiting for people to come in. It's a little less natural on Zoom to do that. Yeah. But if you can really take advantage, like I was working for a while on some election stuff. And so I was working with a team of people who I didn't know. And one guy mentioned that they had just gotten a puppy and I said, we'll bring the puppy to the Zoom. And it was like this nice moment. And the more little nice moments you have like that at the beginning of meetings, the better. 
And so I really recommend if you're a leader and you have a staff meeting, leave five minutes at the beginning to ask people, like, what's going on for you? Because a lot is going on for all of us all the time right now. I love that. I love anchoring to these rituals that existed before, too, because I think it's like we miss them. And yeah. we didn't always hold ourselves to it, but now we try to even more to have meetings end 10 minutes early and all that stuff to like create the break. Yeah. I've been calling people more instead of Zooms because yes. Zooms are a lot, but like trying to throw these other things into the mix that feel like, all right, I'm going for a walk. I'm going to call someone. Do you want to go for a walk? And like try trying yeah. to have the, before I like before times, the before times rituals as a way to have that baseline where you can, where you can, give the feedback. All right, what, last question about feedback, and then I want to get to the new book. Okay. So this wasn't a normal holiday season, but when people think <laughs> about getting back together with families, and I, I'm going to say families specifically, and you know, I, I, at least I'll say, speak for myself here, I think you know, ever, I fall back into the traps of like how things, you know, whatever the family dynamic was, it's easy to fall back into that. Do you think that the same principles apply with your family for mm. of radical candor? Like, do you think you can, can you use the same tools to like actually change someone's opinion or like <laughs> work through <laughs> large conflict? Is that possible? <laughs> yes. I think in, in some ways, as I was writing the book, there was a, uh, a young woman was, was helping me edit the book and she she was an undergraduate student, and she, she looked at me and she said, this is not a book about how to be a good boss. This is a book about how to be a good person. And so I think in many ways, what Radical Candor is about, if you abstract it up uh, sort of to its highest level, it's about love and truth at the same time. And I think that is important for every relationship in your life, and it's those things are probably more important for your personal relationships than even than for your relationships at work. At the same time, I will acknowledge that for a lot of us with our families, we may not have technical debt, but we do have feedback debt. Mm-hmm. And, and, and getting <laughs> uh-huh. past all the layers of many years of feedback debt can be really, really, really hard. And, you know, I will confess that I have maybe one or two relationships in my life where radical candor is the big lie. Um, and so so I, th- I think <laughs> what I'm saying is be gentle with yourself at the holidays. And, and I think with your family, even more than at work, it's really important to lead with the care personally part of radical candor and, uh, and to go gently on the challenge directly. But I, I really do believe that this is the way to repair relationships that need repair and to build good relationships. Often I'll do a radical candor talk for a team in their office and somebody will come up to me afterwards and they'll say, gosh, if I had just heard this talk five years ago, I might not be divorced right now. (laughs) And so I think it is important in any relationship. But I also will acknowledge that digging through the many years and layers of feedback debt can be a painful and daunting process. And sometimes maybe you don't necessarily want to chip through that asbestos. <laughs> it's better to just leave it be. <laughs> Sylvia, is there anyone that you and your family that you feel like you need to work through some feedback debt with? Oh, wow. my gosh. Okay. 
Just you, sorry, you sorry. That's just, we're not going question. there. All right. Um, <laughs> well, I was just I I was gonna ask though because I think <laughs> Savage <laughs> put me on the spot. No, I, I I think I'm someone who I know I'm someone who struggles with giving direct feedback, and I know I could benefit from getting better at giving that direct feedback. And I was really like trying to, you know, kind of go through my head. Why is it so hard for me to like give, give that feedback? I think it's just because I want to be liked, which sounds so juvenile, but I guess I'm wondering like, what do you think gets in the way for most people? Like, is that a common thread that you've heard or is it something else? Yeah, I, like, what gets I, I think in the, the way? desire, the desire to be liked is a huge part of it. And I think often what part of what gets in the way of offering radical candor is a negativity bias. And I think part of it, I, I think you, you're, you're being hard on yourself. I want to be liked. We all, not only do we want, we need to be liked. We, we, and we need to, you know, where it's like in our evolutionary DNA, we need to be part of a group. And so I think that's a big part of it. I also think when I'm not giving feedback to someone, especially at work, it's often because I'm worried that I'll upset the person, the person might start to cry, and then everyone else on the team will think I'm a big you-know-what. And what I call manipulative insincerity, when I'm not challenging, and it's not that I don't care about the person, but I'm more focused on my own reputation as a leader or how other people feel about me. But other times, I... I'm really more focused on that other person. I really genuinely like this person, and I really don't want to hurt their feelings. So it's a more altruistic thing, and that I call ruinous empathy, because I know what I'm going to say is likely to upset them, and I don't want to upset them. And I think that sort of ruinous empathy part uh, of, of the equation, where you are caring, you're showing you care about that other person, but you're not challenging them because you don't want to upset them. I think that's the most common reason why we don't give radical candor. And the way out of that is to think about what happens in the long term. You don't want to let go of that desire to be kind to that person. You want to hold on to it, but you want to focus on what's in that person's best interest in the long term. And it's usually to know the thing. So, for example, can I tell you another story? I'll, t I'll tell you yes, another please. story. <laughs> so this is what I mean by sort of ruinous empathy and manipulative insincerity. And it's, it's probably one of the more painful moments in my whole career. So I had just hired this guy. We'll call him Bob. And I liked Bob a lot. He was smart. He was charming. He was funny. He would do stuff like we were at one of those manager offsites, those, and we were playing one of those endless get-to-know-you games. And this was a startup, and we were all stressed. And, and Bob was the guy who had the courage to raise his hand and say, look, I can tell everybody's really stressed out and, and that we need to get back to work. And I've got an idea. It'll help us get to know each other, and it'll be super fast. Whatever his idea was, if it was fast, we were down with it. And he says, let's just go around the table and confess what candy our parents used when potty training us. Really weird, but really fast. Uh, and weirder yet, we all remembered. And then for the next 10 months, every time there's a tense moment in a meeting, Bob would whip out just the right piece of candy for the right person at the right moment. <laughs> so <laughs> so oh this was God. like, you know, Bob was charming. He was a little quirky, but he brought some levity to the office. Oh, boy. 
one <laughs> problem with Bob. He was doing terrible oh, no. work. Abs- he would hand stuff in to me, and there was shame in his eyes. I could not understand what was going on because he had this incredible resume and this great history of accomplishments. And uh, I learned actually much later, the problem was he was smoking pot in the bathroom three times a day, which maybe explained all that candy. (laughs) (laughs) But I didn't know any of that at the time. All I knew was that Bob was handing stuff into me, shame in his eyes. And I would say something along the lines of, oh, Bob, everybody loves working with you. Maybe you can make it just a little bit better. So, which of course he never did. So let's double click on why I said that to him. Part of why I said that to him was because I really liked him and I really genuinely did not want to hurt his feelings. That was the sort of ruinous empathy part of why I didn't tell him. But if I'm honest with myself, there was something darker going on. And that was that everybody loved Bob. And Bob was kind of a sensitive guy. And I was afraid that if I told Bob in no uncertain terms that his work wasn't nearly good enough, he would burst into tears. It was one of those big open office plans. And everybody would see him and then everybody would think badly of me. So the part of me that was concerned about my own reputation as a leader at the company, that was the manipulative insincerity part. And so this goes on for 10 months and eventually the inevitable happens. And I realized that if I don't fire Bob, I'm going to lose all my best performers because they're sick of having to redo his work. When I sat down to explain to Bob where things stood, he kind of pushed his chair back from the table and he looked me right in the eye and he said, why didn't you tell me? And as that question was going around in my mind with no good answer, he said, why didn't anyone tell me? I thought you all cared about me. And now I realized that I had screwed up in a bunch of different ways as a leader. I had failed to solicit feedback from Bob. That's like number one in the order of operations. I also screwed up because I never gave him praise that was meaningful. The kind of praise I gave him was really just an ego salve or a head fake. And then I never told him when his work wasn't nearly good enough. And probably worst of all, I had failed to create the kind of environment in which Everyone would tell Bob what was truly good about his work and about working with him and when he was going off the rails. And because I had failed Bob in all these different ways, just trying to be nice, to be positive, I'm now firing him because of it. Not so nice after all. But it was too late to save Bob at that moment because even he agreed he should go. His reputation on the team was just shot. All I could do in the moment was make myself a very solemn promise that I would never make that mistake again and that I would do everything in my power to help other people avoid making that mistake. So that's really why I wrote Radical Candor and why I'm talking to you all today, to help your listeners not have those Bob <laughs> moments. Because it was painful. It was oh. it was painful for me. It was worse, much worse for Bob, Way obviously. worse for Bob, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, and terrible for the whole team. It was bad yeah. for everybody. Oh, I've been there too. I mean, I've done the exact thing that you're talking about. And it, it is <laughs> yeah. one of those things that wakes you up that's like, well, the last thing I want to do is have anyone go through that. And it's like not yeah. fair to people to not give them feedback because yeah. ultimately, if there isn't a good place for someone to grow, I want them to give, give them the feedback and let them know that. 
um, yeah. because it's way better for their career to leave when their thing is still successful and they're still doing great stuff, but there isn't a spot than to wait and hope and then have yeah. it not work out. And it, it took me a, a while to get there, but it is one of those things. It's like ultimately it's a gift, right? Like feedback is a gift. Yeah. And it, it sucks to have it not work, but that's why you got to read Radical Candor, right? And then you can have the tool set. <laughs> that's right. So the new book, Just Work, Get Shit Done Fast and Fair. Tell us about the book. Tell us about the impetus for the book. Obviously, you want to write it if you were starting this three months after Radical Candor came out. Um, what, can, what can we expect from this? When can we get our hands on it? Who is it for? Tell us everything. So I think part of the reason why I decided to start writing the book is that I was, after Radical Cantor came out, I was doing a lot of talks, a lot of workshops, and things would happen like this. I was doing a workshop for a, a former colleague of mine who was a, a CEO of a tech company here in Silicon Valley, one of too few black women CEOs in Silicon Valley. And she said to me at the end of the presentation, she said, you know, it's tricky for me to offer radical candor because if I seem even slightly annoyed, I immediately get slimed with the angry black woman stereotype. And, and so I have, to, I have to do more work to make radical candor work for me. And I knew this was true. And I realized I had touched on that very lightly in the book and way too lightly. And so I really wanted to fix that in, in the new book. So I think moments like that were sort of the impetus for it. The interesting thing when I started writing was, was me coming out of denial about the, the gender injustice that I had experienced in my own career. Before I started the book, I told my editor, well, I'm going to need to interview a lot of people because I've been really lucky. I haven't really had any problems. And then I started writing. I'm like, holy cow, you know, I've had a problem every minute of every day of my whole career. How could I have been in such denial? So it was a really interesting process. right? And I think that's part of the reason why it took so long is that it was it was uh, it was part therapy. You had to be radically candid with yeah, yourself. Yeah, it yeah, yeah. It's like. kind of embarrassing for the author of Radical Candor to admit that I was <laughs> in denial, but I was. I'm very focused on solutions, and so this book is very much focused around solutions as well. So it talks about you know what to say when you don't know what to say. So if you are experiencing bias, prejudice, bullying, discrimination, harassment, or physical violations at work, like what can you do or say about it? And then it talks about how to be an upstander, not a bystander. If you observe these things happening and they disturb you, as we all do observe them, but it's hard to know what to do. So I tried to give people real tools, uh, very specific suggestions about what they could do. And then I write about what what you can do if you're accused of exhibiting these attitudes and behaviors, because we all do. At the very least, we all exhibit unconscious bias on a daily basis. And, and I tell some stories about moments in my career when I was a leader and I thought that I was, uh, I thought that I was sort of making the world more just, and I was not. I, I was failing. And those were sort of painful moments. So, so I'm not trying to point fingers at people other than myself, although there, there are some stories. And then the last, the, the, and then I really try to focus on what we can do as leaders. Depending on what your role is, you have a different level of responsibility. And, and really, a leader's role is to try to prevent these things from happening in the first place, because they will destroy the fabric 
of your company. They will destroy your team's ability to collaborate. They will destroy your team's ability to innovate. So if, if you want to build a great company, you got to care about this stuff. So that's the focus of the first part of the book. And then, the, and then I talk towards the end sort of about how to understand how these, the dynamics between these attitudes and behaviors, because bias can lead to violence. Bias can lead to discrimination. So how can we understand the dynamics and name the different sort of types of dynamics that, that emerge? The types of dynamics that like cause the bias or that make you aware no, of the bias th- or no. That- so there's a, there's a dynamic that, that I, you know, there's, there's sort of a violence dynamic. So bias okay. can lead to violence sometimes in the blink of an eye as, as we have seen, uh, unfortunately too much, uh, f- well for all of human history, but it's become especially clear, I think to a lot of us this year. And so what are, the th- what are the things you can do to recognize that dynamic? And sometimes you get a culture that is sort of brutal in effectiveness. But other times you get a culture that is sort of oblivious exclusion, which I think is much more common in companies, but it's still really horrible. And then other times you get a culture that I'll describe as sort of self-righteous shaming. And none of these are productive. And so how can you understand the way that these different dynamics emerge in your company and identify what specifically you need to do to change behaviors? So it's like uh, basically tools to look at how your culture is functioning. Yeah. And what are the dynamics within it that are causing there to be more bias or less bias or more equity or less equity? Or is that the idea that like is the idea that a leader would read this and they would come away thinking differently about the culture that they're building, hopefully, and then they would start to question and change things. And then tools to help them figure out how to do that. Yeah. So the first step is to sort of uh, I, I describe it like this. We tend to think of workplace injustice as this monolithic problem. And so step number one is to take apart the engine and lay the parts out on the driveway. So understand that bias is very different from prejudice, is very different from bullying. And each of these things need different responses. So for example, I was chit-chatting with a guy before a meeting and he said to me, oh, my wife doesn't work because it's better for the children. And I assumed he didn't quite mean it like it sounded. And so to try to give him an out, I made a little joke. And I was like, oh, well, I decided to come to work today because I thought it would be a good idea to neglect my children. And I was expecting a little laugh. And, and no, he was like, oh, no, Kim, you don't understand. I've got all this research that shows you really shouldn't be showing up at work. And Uh-oh. so I, what I was hoping <laughs> was unconscious. the wrong person to say that to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't know he was talking to the radical candor yeah. <laughs> lady. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, what I thought was unconscious bias was actually quite a conscious prejudice. And so I was luckily working at a company that had a very strong code of conduct. And so I was able to say to him, it is... Of uh, uh, an HR violation for you to tell me I'm neglecting my children to show up. So that shut him down, which was my first goal. Like, I think, unlike with bias, you want to use an I statement. Uh, you know, I don't think you meant that the way it sounded, or you want to invite someone in to see things from your perspective. With with conscious prejudice, you asked before, can you change people's beliefs? That's really tricky, and often it, it you can't. 
but and people can believe whatever they want to believe, but they can't impose their beliefs on you. And so you want to use an it statement to show where that line is between their freedom to believe whatever the hell they want and their their unfreedom to impose it on you, their lack of a right to impose that on you. And so if you're lucky and you work at a place that has a good code of conduct, and my recommendation is that leaders offer a code of conduct to make this easier for people. But even if you don't, you can often appeal to common human decency or sometimes the law. So it is really unkind to, or it is illegal to, but you're just showing people where the line is, uh, that they're crossing a line in terms of behavior. And then sometimes there's bullying. And so if, if bias is sort of not meaning it and prejudice is meaning it, bullying is being mean. Clever definitions there. Very short. And, uh, <laughs> and, and with bullying, you want to respond with a you statement. And as a leader, you want to make sure that there are consequences for bullying, because that's the only thing that's going to change the, the behaviors. There is a point in every company's history where the assholes start to win. And that is the point at which the company starts to fail. So don't promote people when they get results by bullying others. Don't pay people big bonuses for bullying. And even in meetings, you want to make sure there are consequences. Very often, I don't know about you all, but very often I'll be in a meeting and there's one person who's like the bloviating bullshitter. And they're dominating the conversation. <laughs> and they don't really know what they're talking about. And if the leader doesn't shut that person down, then the A, it's a waste of time. B, the person who really does know what they're talking about doesn't speak up, so you don't get as good a decision. But for some reason, this bloviating bullshit, it works. It, like, it, it works unless the leader creates consequences for it. I love that. And I love, I love that you're bringing frameworks to all of this. I think it's, in terms of changing a workplace, changing a culture, it's very helpful to have a tool that you can hand someone and be like, yeah. you know, especially it's like after you give someone feedback, you know, I think you should read this. I, th- I think you yeah. <laughs> think you might get something out of the bullying section. Well, maybe not that yeah. one, but the um, and it's <laughs> that would be too be radical. radical. Yeah, too I think you're it a might bully. not be. Usually, yeah. the you, usually not, bullies, maybe not, the actually, bullies yeah. you can never be yeah. too radically candid with the bullies. They kind of appreciate it. That's true. That's true. I love the idea of having a framework to attack this because I think it is. Something that is very, very hard because it touches so many different things. And like, when is something bias? When is it prejudice? When is it bullying? And having clear guidelines, I think, will make that very helpful. Like, I, as you were explaining this, I was just trying to think in my mind, like, have we had bullies? Like, obviously, we've had bias. We've tried to combat that. Like, there's been prejudice. So we've tried to combat that. But like, it's, some people are good at it and some people are very bad at it. And so it is exciting that you've written something that can be that thing that we can point to and hand to folks and get them on the same page um, using the same words. Yeah, I hope so. And also I think it's important, again, to be gentle with ourselves. Like very often in the moment, it's not clear whether it's bias, prejudice, or bullying. And so it's hard to know how to respond. And I think that my first bit of advice is just, just say something. Say something, even if you're wrong, even if you treat it as though it was bullying, but it was actually unconscious bias. The, the, it's useful information for that other person to know that you experienced it like bullying. Like, for example, I was, I was giving a radical candor talk, 
I was about to give one. I was about to go on stage. I was at a conference, tech conference. I was one of very few women at the conference. And this man comes charging up to me, and his a button has clearly popped off his shirt. And he's like, can you go get me a, a safety pin? <laughs> <laughs> and clearly, he thinks I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, he thinks I'm one of the conference staffers because they're mo- they're, most of the women there are staffing the conference, and and he was kind of rude about it too. And and it was like one of those moments where it was a simple moment, but it was a surprisingly complicated moment because on the one hand, it's probably unconscious bias, but on the other hand, he says it to me in this very. Even if I were a staffer, he was being kind of rude. So there was like a little bit of bullying going on. And maybe, I mean, it doesn't happen that often, but it has, it has certainly happened to me more than once where somebody's like, oh, I don't believe in any of that soft, feminine leadership bullshit you espouse, Kim. You know, like maybe it was a conscious prejudice if I, if I had explained I was about to go talk about radical candor. And, and, you know, and then depending on how you respond – you know, if I had found out it was bullying, for example, you know, then I go on the stage and my heart rate is up because I'm pissed. And and so I didn't say anything, but that was that was bad for everybody. It was bad for me because I was not walking the radical candor walk. And it was bad for him because he was, you know, he, it would have been better off uh, if he had understood the mistake he had made. We've all made that kind of mistake where you assume somebody works somewhere and, and you realize that the reasons for that assumption were really flawed and embarrassing. Uh, and and it was it was also really bad for the people who were staffing the event because he kind of stalked off. I was like, I don't know where a safety pin is. And he was like, God, these people who work here are assholes. Well, and he probably gave like, him a bad yeah. rating. You know? It sounds like so, he was a dick, so. <laughs> yes, but... but Sorry, I'm sorry. Week, I'm just yeah. getting frustrated thinking about someone having their own problem and then going yeah. to uh, anyone and being like, solve my problem for no, me. It's su- yeah. It's yeah. super gross. Yeah. No, super look, gross. it's frustrating when this stuff, ha- but we have, I mean, I we have to find have- that guy and bully him. <laughs> <laughs> it's no, we have yes. to be radically yes. candid with pr- him. Th- and this is actually, this is really <laughs> one of the tricky things because radical candor, right? is all about care personally and challenge directly. None of us care very much about that guy right now. We yeah. all want to hate I don't. him. I really don't. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you do there? Like, what's the care personally yeah. portion? Yeah, for that so guy? I think what, what I tend to do, and I want to acknowledge that it's easier for me to do this because I'm often in, in a privileged position. But what I wish I had said is, look, uh, I don't work here the people who staff this are wearing these bright yellow T-shirts. Um, and P.S., by the way, they're also 30 years younger than I am, but <laughs> thank you for... <laughs> um, and uh, He didn't pick up on any of those cues. Wow, okay, uh, and okay. so maybe they can help you find your safety pin. And, and then he probably would have realized, and he probably would have... And this has also happened to me where I have said something, and he's like, oh, I'm so sorry... And then if I were really feeling brave and that I had another extra beat to give to this interaction, I would have said, you know, the way you spoke to me was pretty rude. When you go talk to the people in the yellow T-shirts, I hope you'll be more polite. Well, Kim, you, you've inspired me to be more brave in my conversations. And I, I'm sure that you've inspired many of our listeners as well. Um, I think, you know, the stories you're telling and the examples that you're giving, I think are 
inspiring and there's a there's a lot of folks who I know have benefited from your work. I have benefited from it. I'm really, really excited for the new book. I can't wait to read it. Um, and just really appreciate you spending so much time with us today. This has been really amazing. So thank you. Thank you for being on the show with us. Well, thank you. I appreciate the radical candor enthusiasm, and I'm excited to hear what both <laughs> of you have to think about Just Work. Can't wait. Oh, and you can buy it. You can buy it today. It's out March 16th, but pre-orders matter. So buy it now. Don't wait. Sylvia, you know what's so great about Kim is that we literally finished the interview and then she, we're done and we're, you know, getting files and stuff and oh, <laughs> we're going to upload this over here and that over here and which system do you want to use? And it, this always happens, right? The interview ends and then you watch people's guard Turn come down, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, every time this happens, and sometimes I get very frustrated because someone just starts saying a story or something. I'm like, <laughs> why didn't you put that in the show? Uh, and But Kim says, she goes, do you have any feedback for me? No, seriously. Do you have do you have feedback for me about how I did on this? Like, what what can I do better? Of course, like of long? course, of course, she did that. But like, yeah, yeah, author of Radical Candor, she's like, give it to me straight. But so shocking because it's like to actually live that way. Uh, you I know, know, of course, it's easy for her to do now, and it's a habit. But I was actually very inspired by that moment because I know, yeah, I was too. Yeah, I was too. I no, but same work, same work. Yeah, no, I was I, very inspired by that moment. I think it is hard especially with people you don't know very well to like ask for that feedback to know that they care about you all this stuff from her book like and to say like all right what can i do better and it was like, such like actually it's also like such a badass move it's like do you, you just think it's like you're so confident that like yeah actually of course i want this feedback i feel like i i need to start doing this like everything just at the end like and what feedback yeah. you have for me and they're like what the hell are you talking I, about i i love it i felt the exact same way and then we recorded 10 more minutes well that was the best part is that we were that like that was the best part yeah well we missed some stuff and we start talking and then you were like you two need to stop it you need <laughs> you two need to record again because yeah. this is stuff that should be in the show. And so we did. And it got on the show, which is really, it was amazing because the feedback loop was so short. It was like, well, what could we do better? Like, well, we didn't really touch on this topic or we thought we were going to go there and like, you know, yada, yada. And then suddenly I, I think it made, it made the interview better. So that was such a cool thing to see in practice. Like, here's the methodology. And then she literally did it to us. <laughs> she knows that it works. Yeah. She, she radically candored us. Oh, we need great. we need like a it's like the Jedi mind trick. We need to like come up with a thing. She yep. Kim Scotted us. She, she Kim, Kim Scotted, Scotted us, us. Maybe yes, yes. For a second, <laughs> okay. I thought you were trying to um, <laughs> make this type of feedback your thing. Like I thought you're like, oh, let's just Sylvie the situation, and uh, that's how. Oh. <laughs> My, doing a Sylvie is like uh, showing up late to a recording. That's doing a Sylvie. <laughs> <laughs> no, I there. Uh, there's a Sylvie. Uh, we'll figure out what my thing is. Okay, let's later let's, this season. Maybe that can be one of our goals for 2021: is to figure yes. out what doing a Sylvie is that isn't just <laughs> showing up late for a recording like you always do, <laughs> like I do once every <laughs> ten episodes. Uh, great, great, great. And actually, speaking of feedback, let's just stay on this. We want your feedback. So, you know, if if you can rate and review us, we would actually appreciate it. Give us some critical love. You can also email us directly if you have more verbose things you want to tell us. 
at ttlpod at wistia.com. I'm very proud right now. You had two stellar segues in this episode. Brought it home with feedback. Couldn't be prouder. Thank you, Selby. I really appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) That's feedback, too. Uh, That's true. You got to care. You're showing me that you care passionately. Yeah. Um, Great. Well, I think we should probably go. I think we should sign off on this this high note. Because this is how you end a podcast episode. Like (laughs) this. This. Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia. Hosted by Chris Savage. Produced by me, Sylvie Lubau, along with Adam Day. Executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Grant Cutler. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com.